Hi, I'm Joseph Feraldi. I want to thank you for joining us here at Bayside Chapel Online. Our prayer is that today's service will be a blessing to you, that it will encourage you in your journey with Jesus Christ, and it will help you to see all that God has in store for you. We would love to hear from you on how God is using this ministry to bless you, and we'd love the opportunity to pray for you. Just send us an email at amen at baysidechapel.org. Remember that you can stay in touch with us at any time. Just visit the App Store and search for our app at Bayside Chapel of NJ. Also, if God is using this ministry to bless you, we'd like to give you the opportunity to partner with us financially. Simply go online to BaysideChapel.org or use the Bayside Chapel app and choose whatever option works best for you. Enjoy today's message. And what an exciting week we had here. And thank you for to anyone who volunteered and made uh, this week possible. What an incredible Vacation Bible School. Looking forward to next year already. I know some of you are... See, I got to stay behind the camera, so that was, it was a little easier for me. Well, have you ever known one of those Christians who just always likes to pick a fight? See, I think we all know at least one of those Christians. It could be that legalistic churchgoer who constantly condemns others for not meeting her strict, unbiblical standards. Or it could be the person who takes his stand on the hill of politics. He'll take to social media to beat up uh, every one of his liberal friends. See, the uncomfortable truth is that some Christians seem to live for a fight. We see it in our day. But it's nothing new. We've seen it all throughout church history. In fact, the church's history of violence and fighting is one of those popular objections to the Christian faith. From the Crusades to the Inquisition to the Salem witch trials, right? There have been dark moments in history when violence and fighting were wrongly associated with Christianity. When power-hungry people used Christianity simply as a means for their own selfish ends. So what are we to make of all this? How do we make sense of this? Well, would it surprise you if I told you that Scripture actually commands us to fight? The New Testament demands that followers of Christ fight for the faith. But it's not the kind of fight that demands violence. It's not the kind of fight that's won with fists and swords and guns. It's not a fight that weaponizes religion, and it's not a fight that resorts to bullying or name-calling or rioting. So what kind of fight is it then? Well, that's the exact question that the Apostle Paul is going to answer for us in our passage today. In our final passage of uh, 1 Timothy Um, As we've been going through this series, today we come to 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 11 through 21. And it's in this passage that Paul reminds his apprentice Timothy and all of us, by extension, to fight the good fight of the faith. Fight the good fight of the faith. See, the fight that Christians are called to isn't just any fight. It's a good fight, a worthy fight for the gospel of Jesus. And for 2,000 years, Christians have been in this fight. 
The spiritual fight, the spiritual war between good and evil, the spiritual uh, war between light and dark, the war between lies and truth. We're in a cosmic battle between the life-giving gospel of Jesus and the death-bringing deception of the evil one. As Paul said elsewhere, he said in Ephesians, he says, we're not, we're, we're, he says we're in a wrestling match, a fight, not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. See, the scope of this war is universal, and the stakes of this war are eternal. So we must be prepared to fight the good fight of the faith. So our passage, like I said, is 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 11 through 21. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 11 through 21. I'm going to read the entire passage for us. Paul says, But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us every, with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. So in these closing words of his first letter to Timothy, Paul exhorts us to fight the good fight of the faith. And he gives us three tactics for fighting this good fight. So the first tactic in fighting this fight is simply this, to turn away from all that is harmful. The first tactic in fighting this fight is in our turning away from everything that's harmful. So Paul starts in verse 11. He says, but as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Now, just before this verse, we looked at this passage last week, Paul uh, was scolding the false teachers in Ephesus for their uh, twisted gospel, for their uh, corrupt doctrine, and for their selfish lifestyles. So in contrast to these ungodly people, Paul reminds Timothy of his identity. He calls him a man of God. 
See, what he's doing here is he's encouraging and he's motivating Timothy by giving Timothy the same designation, the same title that was used of so many of the Old Testament saints like Moses and Elijah and Elisha. And by calling him a man of God, Paul's reminding Timothy that he's in service to God and that he represents God to the people, just like we do with our faith in Christ. So he says, as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Now, what are these things here that he's referring to? See, these things are the harmful things that tripped up the false teachers and their followers, things that pulled them, yanked them away from God, things like their lust for money, their obsession with materialism, their constant complaining and bickering and quarreling, their divisive attitudes, their divisive words, their divisive ways, and their delusional religious beliefs. See, there are so many things, just like there were for them, there are so many things that are fighting for our attention, pulling at us from every which direction. But perhaps, perhaps one of the most dangerous things, just as it was 2,000 years ago, so it is today, one of the most dangerous things is perhaps our preoccupation with money. This is why Paul reiterates this in verse 17, where he gives specific instructions to the wealthy. Look at verse 17. He says, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Now, notice here the, the twin dangers of wealth, right? For one, the wealthy are prone to, to, to haughtiness, to, to be arrogant, right? With wealth comes the temptation to think of yourself as better than others, uh, to think of yourself as better than those who have less than you, right? It can be said, then, that possessions produce pride. The greater the possessions, the greater the pride. And the second danger, then, here is that the wealthy tend to put their trust in their own riches. They put their hope and their trust in their own riches. And see, that's what money does. Money can lead us away from dependence on God and drive us toward depending on ourselves. But wealth is uncertain. Money is, is fleeting. It could be here today and gone tomorrow. Investments can go south. Disaster can strike. And so the point that Paul's getting at here is that our ultimate worth is not in our net worth. That our meaning, our ultimate meaning, can't be found in money. That our value has nothing to do with our investments. That our security is not found in the sum total of our possessions. So, Paul would say, flee from the lust of money. Don't place your trust in uncertain riches, but place your trust in your certain God because he's the one who richly provides us everything we need to enjoy life with each other and life with him. And then he goes on in verses 20 and 21 where Paul draws attention to a couple other things that he wants us to avoid, that he wants us to steer away from. So we're to turn away from the lust of money and then what we see here is that we should also turn away from the lure of compromise, the pull toward compromising our convictions and our beliefs. He starts out in verse 20. He says, O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. So the deposit 
here refers to the treasure of the core content of the gospel, uh, of Jesus' perfect life, his sacrificial death, and his victorious resurrection. That's what he's talking about here. So he's saying uh, the, the way that a banker would guard the treasures in his vault, we must protect this deposit of the gospel from thieves, thieves who are looking to steal it, thieves who are looking to corrupt it, thieves who are looking uh, to discredit it, thieves who are looking to devalue it or destroy it. So he says, Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge, for by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. See, there were In Paul's day in Ephesus, there were some of those people there, some false teachers there who veered away from the truth of the gospel. And then they claimed some version of their own truth and called it knowledge. But this was nothing more than what Paul calls irreverent babble and contradictions. Nothing more than ungodly chatter that contradicts or distracts from the absolute truth of the gospel. See, instead of forming their worldview around God's truth alone, these people compromised truth, and they diluted the truth with their ideas, with their opinions. They adulterated the truth with their desires. They they altered the truth with what they wanted. They watered it down with their feelings. And the result of this kind of compromise was nothing less than swerving off the track of truth, headlong over the cliff of deception. See, just as the early church had a fight against compromise, we must fight against compromise. Just as the early church needed to avoid arguments and speculations that were distracting them from their mission, so must we. So we need to resist the pull to compromise absolute truth in a society that condemns absolutes. We need to make sure we're not departing from the compass of God's word, drifting away into dangerous waters just one degree at a time. We need to refuse to get drawn into the irreverent babble of our day that breeds controversy and does nothing for the edification of the saints. We need to be wise in avoiding those secondary debates that tend to bring more heat than light. We can't waste our limited energy by entertaining fruitless controversies or conspiracy theories or end-time speculations. We need to fight the complacency that will leave us vulnerable to whatever cheap, pseudo-spiritual counterfeits are being peddled today, whether it's witchcraft or psychics or horoscopes or healing crystals. We need to stand firm against the ear-tickling teachers that contradict the sound words of the gospel. And we need to be vigilant. Be vigilant to equip yourself to detect the counterfeits. See, you need to commit to knowing the truth so well so that when a half-truth comes along, you can see it as a half-truth. And a half-truth is a lie. So turn away from all that is harmful, from whatever it is, that takes your focus off of Jesus. Turn away from that thing or those things. It could be the lust for money. It could be just the the sheer amount of distractions or the lure of compromise. We must fight the good fight of the faith. 
So our first tactic is to turn away from all that is harmful. Here's our second tactic. The second tactic in fighting this good fight is to run ahead to all that is holy. Run ahead to all, everything that is holy. Look at the second part there of verse 11. Paul says, but as for you, O man of God, flee these things. And then he says, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. See, Timothy was called to flee the things that were going to wreck his message and ruin his ministry. And as he pivots away from all these harmful things, he's at the same time running full steam ahead into the holy embrace of God. So the, the contrast here between fleeing and pursuing is a vivid picture of the Christian life. Right? There will always be things on earth that we need to avoid, things that we actively need to avoid, not just passively, things that require intentionality. But the flip side of Christian discipleship is in the active pursuit of good and beautiful and godly things. So Paul tells us what some of those are. We're to pursue righteousness. That's right thinking and upright living and godliness. Godliness is the result of you giving God permission to imitate, to replicate himself in you. We're to pursue faith. Faith is that ever-deepening reliance upon Jesus and that ever-growing confidence in God's character. Then after faith, we pursue love, that a greater and deeper affection for God and for others. Then we pursue steadfastness, that, that patient perseverance through painful trials and difficult times. And finally, we pursue gentleness, being kind toward even the most difficult people. Verse 12, Paul says, fight the good fight of the faith. See, it's no mistake that the command here to fight the good fight of the faith in verse 12 is, is tied to the pursuit of everything holy that we just looked at in verse 11, which means that we fight the good, the, the good fight of the faith with godliness. We fight with love. We fight with faith. We fight with gentleness. He says, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. As if Paul's wanting to remind Timothy uh, that, that he, so he doesn't want to get the impression, he doesn't want to give Timothy the impression that somehow he can pursue holiness through his own self-effort, right? When we pursue holiness through our own self-effort, we call that religion, and Christianity is all about an intimate relationship. So instead, he tells Timothy, take hold of the eternal life that was already his. See, he received eternal life. Timothy received eternal life at his conversion. And then he confirmed um, his beliefs at his baptism and at his ordination. But Paul is telling him, he's saying, Timothy, take hold of it now. The eternal life that Timothy has, the eternal life that we have by faith in Jesus Christ, isn't just a future hope, something that will happen one day. It's a present possession. It's something that we have right now. It means we'll not only get to experience heaven one day in the future, it means that we get to access the resources of heaven right now, today, this very moment. So for Timothy, and for us to take hold of eternal life, 
means that we get to experience the joy and the satisfaction that come from knowing God as our Father and knowing Jesus as our Savior. It means that we get to experience the peace of knowing that our sins have been forgiven and that our salvation is secure. It means that we could experience the comforting presence and the enabling power of the indwelling Holy Spirit. It means that we could experience the Christian life just as God intended, not as a religious exercise with rules and rituals, but as an intimate relationship with Jesus who loves us completely and accepts us entirely, not because of anything we can do, but simply because of what Jesus did for us in his death and resurrection. So as we fight the good fight of the faith, We run ahead to all that is holy, pursuing a life of dependence on God. Now, if you remember earlier, Paul had some specific instructions for the wealthy. We saw earlier in verse 17 that he cautioned the wealthy to turn away from their lust for money. Well, now in verses 18 and 19, then Paul is going to give the wealthy a positive command, right? How their wealth can be used for good. 18 and 19. He says, they, meaning the wealthy, they are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. See, don't make the mistake and think that Paul's saying here that like, money is a sin, we saw that last week. It's not money. It's, it's the love of money that's the root of evil. Right? And he isn't telling the wealthy here to divest themselves of all their riches, of all their wealth. But what he's saying is, hey, don't place your hope in your wealth. So as the wealthy turn away from arrogance and run ahead toward humility, as they turn away from trusting their wealth and run toward trusting in God alone, they're going to be free to live generous lives. See, what all this means for us is that one of the ways that we fight the good fight of the faith is by being generous people, by being people of generosity. See, if God has blessed us with resources, we have a responsibility to leverage those resources for doing good and meeting needs. And this runs so countercultural to the uh, to, to, to the self-reliant, uh, self-centered way most people live today. But when you have eyes to see beyond the temporary, when you have eyes to see the eternal rewards, you can avoid the traps of the temporary pleasures. And see, another thing giving does is, is when we give generously, it loosens that competing grip that money has on our hearts. And when we share generously. It guards against greed, and it unlocks even greater trust in God's provision. So we're supposed to cultivate a spirit of generosity, not stinginess. As Jesus said, it's more blessed to give than to receive. So let's be people, let's be a church that shares freely with those in need, not hoarding temporary things for ourselves, but storing eternal treasures in heaven. Let's be people who do good for the kingdom of God, aiding the poor, providing 
education, showing hospitality, sponsoring an underprivileged child in need. Let's be people of generosity, investing in the local church and in missions, using our resources to spread the gospel and to strengthen the church. See, and make no mistake, in our self-centered and self-reliant culture, this is countercultural warfare. It's exactly what this is. But in God's economy, this kind of radical generosity will lead to even greater spiritual riches that will have a lasting impact long beyond our timelines. So church, run ahead. Run ahead to everything that is holy. Pursue a life of dependence on God and pursue a life of generosity toward others. See, this is all part of what it looks like to fight the good fight of the faith. Our first tactic in fighting this good fight is to turn away from all that is harmful. Our second tactic is to run ahead to all that is holy. And then we see here the third tactic in this fight, and that's to live in light of all that is heavenly. Live in light of all that is heavenly. See, Paul was aware that fighting the good fight of faith wasn't always going to be easy. Taking hold of the eternal life that we have in Christ, it requires a daily struggle against the darkness that's constantly clawing at us. It's all too easy to feel alone and powerless in this battle, which is why Paul reminds us now to live in awareness of the great God who fights the battle on our behalf. He says, starting in verse 13, he says, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession. So Paul is going to, um, again, charge Timothy to uphold the faith. But here, this time, he's going to frame it around uh, three encouraging reminders. So in his charge to Timothy, the first reminder is Paul reminds Timothy and us to live in light of God's presence. Live in light of God's presence. He's saying, I'm charging you in the presence of God who gives life to all things. In other words, don't ever fall into the trap of thinking that you're all alone. You're never alone. God is with you. When fatigue and doubt start to whisper lies to you that the fight is too hard, remember who fights the battle for you. The God who called you his own, the one who marked your name upon his hand, the powerful creator of the universe who spoke everything into existence, he's with you and he fights for you. Therefore, live in light of God's presence. And then the second encouraging truth here is that Christ was faithful for you. See, in his charge to Timothy, Paul calls to mind that time when Jesus made the good confession before Pontius Pilate. See, as his crucifixion was drawing near that Good Friday, the Son of God confessed that he was the king, and he was killed for it. See, Timothy's confession and our confession uh, focuses on our belief in Jesus as Lord and Savior, but Jesus' confession focused on himself as the Lord and Savior. So know that you're never alone in your battles. Jesus is on the front line. Death couldn't keep him down. No grave could confine him. The mighty Son of God who calmly confessed his kingdom as Pilate pronounced death, 
He marches with you. No matter how difficult the circumstances might become, remember Jesus. Remember that he was faithful even in the face of death. So fix your eyes on him. He endured the cross. He was raised to life and he's now seated at the right hand of the Father. The king who died to save you now lives to empower you. So live in light of God's presence. Live in view of Christ's faithfulness. So Paul says, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords. See, not only then is Jesus the king who died to save you. Not only is Jesus the king who lives to empower you, but here we see that Jesus is the king who will return for you. So with that future reality in mind, you can press on. Press on. You can fight the good fight of the faith. When you get discouraged or when you feel defeated, look up. Fix your gaze to heaven. Fix your eyes above, because one day Jesus will split the skies and ride the clouds to claim his faithful bride. And on that day, when you see Jesus face to face, all of your struggles, all of your sacrifices will culminate in an inexpressible moment of joy. But until that day comes, remember that you walk in the same resurrection power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead. So here we've been encouraged to live in light of God's presence. We've been encouraged to live in view of Christ's faithfulness. And then the third encouragement to to us here is to live in awe of God's greatness. To live in awe of God's greatness. See, at the end of verse 15, Paul erupts into this majestic hymn of praise to God. He identifies God as the blessed and only sovereign, the king of kings and lord of lords. So he's saying God reigns supreme over every earthly authority. He reigns supreme over every spiritual power. He's the sovereign one who governs every single detail of your life for your good, for his glory. Even in the midst of turmoil, even in the the midst of confusion and uncertainty, you can rest in God's absolute control over the future because he's working all things according to his good purposes and there isn't one detail that escapes his notice and there isn't one thing that sneaks past his sovereignty. And he says in verse 16, He, God, who alone has immortality, who dwells, in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. So Paul's saying here that God alone possesses immortality. He's the source of eternal life and he's the giver of eternal life. Everything else in this world is temporary and fleeting and perishing. He is the everlasting God who doesn't grow tired, who doesn't faint, who doesn't grow weary. He's the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end, the same yesterday, today, and forever. And while we age... While our bodies perish, we can find strength 
and comfort, knowing that God, the Ancient of Days, lives eternally and promises to guide his children home to eternity. And then Paul says, we're told here, that God dwells in unapproachable light, meaning that his power is unmatched and his holiness is is unfathomable. Though we can only catch glimpses of his glory right now, a day is coming when we will get to behold Jesus in full splendor, face to face, seeing our king in all his beauty. And what a wonderful day that will be. See, the glory that we can, the glory that we can only faintly imagine today is going to be replaced for the glory that we're going to see fully tomorrow. So in response to God's greatness then, we honor him for who he is and for what he's done, and we surrender to his eternal dominion, submitting to his will, submitting to his ways, worshiping him with our hearts, worshiping him with our minds, worshiping him with our lips, worshiping him with every fiber of our being. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Amen. Church, fight the good fight of the faith. Turn away from everything that is harmful, everything that tries to pull you away from God, and run ahead to everything that is holy. Run ahead to everything that draws you closer to God and live in the light of the reality of God's greatness and of the faithfulness of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your son. We thank you for Jesus Christ. We thank you for his life, his death, and his resurrection, that Jesus lived the perfect life none of us would ever be able to live, that he died the sinner's death that we deserve to die, and that he rose victoriously from the grave, defeating our greatest enemies of sin and death. And Lord, we recognize that we get all of the blessings of heaven, all of the wonders of eternal life, simply by trusting in what Jesus already did. Lord, so even in these moments, if anyone is in this room who has not yet put their trust in your son, Lord, I pray that even now in the stillness of these moments, they would do that. Your word says if you confess Jesus as Lord and if you believe in your heart that you raised him from the dead, that person will be saved. Lord, we also thank you that you enable us to fight this good fight of faith with courage and with confidence. Father, help us to be people who demonstrate the fruit of the Spirit people that when we interact with those around us, when we interact from people who look different than us, vote different than us, think different than us, live different than us, Lord, that they would see the love and compassion of Jesus. Lord, enable us by your spirit to fight the good fight of the faith, and we thank you that this victory is already won. Though the battles sometimes seem hard, remind us that Jesus already won the war. Lord, and until the day comes when we don't fight any more battles, 
Lord, remind us that every battle is yours, that all of our battles belong to you. We need only rest in you and trust in you. Lord, and with all of this, we thank you for Jesus. We pray all of these things in his mighty, precious name. All God's children said, amen.